Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Aaron Jones of the Need to Know podcast at the Wilson Center back with you once again. We're going to take another trip in our relationships and rivalries series that we have been doing, this time focusing on the relationship between Venezuela and Colombia. And to talk about this today, we have the director of the Latin American program at the Wilson Center, Cindy Arnson. Welcome, Cindy. Hey, Aaron. It's great to be with you. Great to be with you as well. Always happy to talk to you and appreciate all the help that you give us. So these two countries have a pretty interesting relationship. They are, they are neighbors, obviously. But something that Cindy and I talked about offline is actually that Venezuela and Colombia have no formal diplomatic relations. After Guaido uh, was recognized as interim president by so many countries, President Maduro actually cut off diplomatic relations with Colombia in 2019 and also, Colombia has lent its territory to a massive effort uh, to deliver humanitarian aid to Venezuelans who have been crossing the border, which we will get into. Very interesting history. With Everybody knows the challenges that are going on right now in Venezuela. Colombia is coming out of a basically a 50-year guerrilla war, and they've had their own tra challenges with drug trafficking. So let's start with Colombia. Their history, going back several decades, has been a rough one. So let's just start there uh, with the, the relationship going back a few decades between Colombia and Venezuela. Sure. Well, thanks for that question. And it's a good one to start with because for decades, um, until the signing of a peace agreement in 2016 between the government of Colombia and the largest guerrilla group, the FARC, um, Colombia had suffered decades um, of guerrilla warfare, of internal armed conflict with not just the FARC, but also the ELN and the M19 and other smaller guerrilla groups that actually demobilized at certain points in the 1990s. Um, and as a result of that conflict, which took place primarily in rural areas of Colombia, where the Colombian government, the state, continues to have a weak presence, um, thousands and thousands of Colombian civilians fled into Venezuela for safe haven. Venezuela was considered one of Latin America's longest running and um, uh, most important democracies. And there were lots and lots of Colombians um, that went to Venezuela and received refuge. And that's, I think, the backdrop for understanding the kind of generosity that the Colombian government, including the under the current president, Ivan Duque, but even before, the, the generosity that Colombia has shown to what is now um, uh, over 2 million Venezuelan refugees that are in uh, in Colombia alone, out of a total of about 6 million Venezuelans who have fled the economic collapse of their country, political repression, 
um, the humanitarian crisis, um, all of these things have, have pushed these massive numbers of Venezuelans out um, to the point that, you know, the Venezuelan exodus um, has long been considered the second largest refugee crisis in the world after Syria. Um, I'm not sure where Afghanistan now fits in that ranking, but the Venezuelan crisis is certainly huge. Um, and as of those 6 million Venezuelans who have fled, the vast majority, uh, maybe five out of the 6 million have remained in Latin America and the Caribbean. Colombia, number one, but also Peru, Ecuador, Chile, Brazil, on down the line, Argentina, Mexico, even Central American countries. And Colombia serves as a transit point, whether they stop in Colombia or not. If they're going to Ecuador, they're going through Colombia. And Colombia has set up services for these migrants coming from Venezuela. Let's talk a little bit about what the Colombian government has set up for these folks. Sure. Well, let me just um, remind you that the, the Colombia and Venezuela share a huge border. It's almost 1,400 miles. A lot of it is in areas on the, on the Colombian side, um, along areas that are not hugely populated. Um, but going up as you head uh, north um, in uh, eastern Colombia to some of the areas, particularly a, a, a department known as Norte de Santander, which is the epicenter of coca cultivation or one of the epicenters of coca cultivation in 2019. It was the um, largest uh, coca producing area of Colombia. Colombia continues to be the world's largest producer um, of coca and, and cocaine. Um, so these are areas that are not well policed by either side where neither the Venezuelan government nor the Colombian government has control over these border areas and where guerrillas have operated for a long time. The FARC for many years having safe haven in Venezuela places to stage and plan attacks, to have, you know, R&R. Um, and now that the FARC has demobilized, one of the most powerful dissident fronts of the FARC that refused to demobilize the 10th Front is, for the most part, based in Venezuela, as is the largest current guerrilla group, the ELN. Um, and so there um, are lots of accusations under completely correct by the government of Colombia against the government of Venezuela for harboring these insurgent groups that are attacking um, um, the civilian population as well as the armed forces. And Venezuela, for its part, claims that Colombia is a staging ground for efforts to topple the, the government of Venezuela. Hmm. So you start with this fact that there is this long border that is already very complicated in terms of state presence, in terms of poverty, um, and uh, in, in terms of illicit activity. So the bulk of the conflict now, and I'll, I'm not exactly answering your question, but I think you know, we'll, we'll get there. But the bulk of the conflict now, since the majority of FARC fighters demobilized, is for control of those areas. 
So the FARC, the, the FARC dissidents are fighting against the ELN, against paramilitary groups. The um, elements of the Venezuelan military are allied with some of these um, insurgent uh, criminal organizations. It's a major hub of narcotics trafficking and of other forms of the illicit economy, including um, the smuggling of gold. And we also have to remember that the border, even before this military conflict heated up and resulted in the displacement of thousands um, of people away from the, uh, the border areas from Venezuela into Colombia and from the Colombian border further into other parts of the country, you know, for a long time, it was um, an area of enormous commerce, uh, legal and illegal. There was gasoline smuggling, but, you know, um, even uh, back in the 2000s, when Alvaro Uribe, uh, a center-right, right-wing president in Colombia, was facing off against Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, the two countries were still each other's second largest trading partner after the United States. So there was a lot of commerce and all of that has fallen apart. And Cucuta, which is one of the um, cities in Colombia, which has in a sort of a, a suburb of Cucuta, uh, Villa del Rosario, has one of the main official crossing points between the two countries, was always and historically had been a hub of this legal commerce between Venezuela and Colombia. And now, of course, um, um, it is a place where a lot of migrants cross, sometimes just for the day, to purchase things in Colombia and then go back to Venezuela or to begin their migration journey. Yeah, that's interesting. So let's talk about Cucuta for a second here. That we, I'm sure a lot of listeners have probably seen the pictures of people coming across there. Um, and this, this aspect that you just mentioned where there are people who come in, they, uh, they, they may get their meals, they may get, they may do some shopping, but they go back. This is, this, there are thousands of people who are doing that, right? Correct. Um, a lot of people, I mean, when I, I haven't been to Cucuta for several years because of COVID, but I was there in, in November, 2019 and, there is a word for the migrants that, that come in for the day to purchase things and then go back. They're called pendular, you know, just going back and forth. Um, and the, the sight of people, most of them fairly frail because of the depth of the humanitarian and economic crisis in Venezuela, carrying back on their backs these enormous sacks of goods that um, they buy on the Colombian side and then make uh, scrape by a living by reselling those things in Venezuela. So there's a lot of this so-called pendular uh, migration, but other people are coming into Colombia either to stay there or to continue a journey further south into Ecuador, into Peru, into Chile. And the, the voyage is very difficult. Um, and we also have to remember that during the pandemic, the border was closed. Um, the border shut down the official crossing points 
shut down in March of 2020 and only reopened on the Colombian side uh, last June. And then the Venezuelan side continued to block people from trying to leave. But I think it was around in October of last year uh, that the border was, was fully reopened. So what happens when the border is closed is not that people stop coming. They just come through much more dangerous uh, crossing points, illegal crossing points, along this long and porous border with illegal armed groups, criminal groups, extorting people, raping people, um, and uh, making that journey from Venezuela into Colombia extremely perilous, um, sometimes recruiting them into uh, organized criminal groups or petty crime groups, but uh, it's a it's a pretty pretty desperate situation. And one thing that that's also so striking um, when you visit the border is that once people have crossed through the Colombian checkpoints, there are big signs across the top that say "Welcome to Colombia." And the reason that Colombia has done this is, as we were talking about at the beginning the sense of historical debt to a country and to a people that offered refuge and safe harbor to Colombians when they were in their time of need. Um, and but, but what's happened, I think, over the years is that the sheer volume of people who have come and continue to come has really overwhelmed the capacity, not only of the Colombian government, but also this array of humanitarian organizations, Catholic relief services, just a whole array of religious groups and others that have that feed thousands of people every day, Jesuit refugee service. I mean, people who are trying to attend to the refugees. But the Duque government did something quite remarkable last year, which was to offer uh, legal status to about one point six or 1.7 million Venezuelans who had crossed um, before January of 2021. And in part, it was an effort by the Colombian government just to know who these people were, but also to register them so that they could be provided with services. And of course, it's become harder and harder to do that because Latin America is the region of the world that has suffered the greatest economic decline as a result of the pandemic, has suffered um, the greatest number of deaths per size of its population. And we can talk about that, but given that, and, and things are improving, I mean, economic growth is sort of, is starting to, um, uh, to take off again and vaccines are getting around more and more. Um, but it has made for a very tense situation. And just one last footnote um, that there have been border crises in the United States with Haitians showing up in massive numbers at the U.S. southern border. Some of them obviously fleeing the political chaos, the violence, the economic collapse in Haiti, but others coming from countries like Chile, where they had had not necessarily legal status, but where they had been in residence for many years and were no longer welcome and had no jobs 
and uh, were subject to growing acts of xenophobia. And so Haitians from further south in South America were migrating north, going through a very, very dangerous area between Colombia and Panama, known as the Darien Gap, um, and from there, coming up to the U.S. border. So um, the situation for Venezuelans throughout the hemisphere, for all of these countries that are simply overwhelmed, and I would be remiss to not mention the Caribbean, which has smaller numbers overall, but as a percentage of their populations, has a much greater share of Venezuelans to native-born populations. So Venezuelan um, refugees uh, cross by water. Uh, it, it, Venezuela is has its northern coast on the Caribbean, and a lot of people migrate through those routes, and Caribbean islands are similarly um, overwhelmed. So I'm going to ask the question, kind of the same question, but for both sides of the border, starting with Venezuela. It cannot be good for Venezuela uh, to have so many people leaving the country. Uh, and it also can't be good for them to be going and kind of creating this other economy with the the pendular migrants um, who are going and getting goods, bringing it back and, and selling them in Venezuela. So what's the what's the feeling on the side of the Venezuelan side of the border uh, w- with all these people leaving? I mean, what's what's the government's take on this, uh, that so many people are leaving, and are they doing anything to try to stop them as they approach that border? Not at all. And and to be honest, it is a safety valve um, mm. for the Venezuelan government because the level of economic crisis, of the lack of basic food, medicine, all those kinds of things is so great that um, the migration serves as, as a safety valve. And when you think about it, last year, a number of universities published the second iteration of a household survey that was trying to gauge poverty. And it found that 95% of Venezuelan households are in poverty, and 75% of Venezuelan households are considered to be in extreme poverty. So the Venezuelan government is not able to provide for its people. It supposedly provides these food boxes uh, known as CLAP by the acronym in Spanish that really don't last a month by any means, um, subsidies of food to to poor families. Um, And it uh, has also prevented, for the most part, huge amounts of humanitarian aid from coming into the country because it wants to maintain its control over the distribution of those resources. Now, it was a major breakthrough um, during COVID that the World Food Program was granted access. And there are at least initially something like 7 million Venezuelans that were benefiting from the assistance through the World Food Program, but those need to be greatly expanded. Um, And the the key aspect of this is that the Venezuelan government does not want to cede control to independent bodies, whether it's the UN or whether it is a private um, uh, assistance agency. Um, The people that operate on the ground have to be registered with the government. 
There are probably about a dozen international NGOs that are registered, the Norwegian Refugee Council and and others, um, who are on the ground in Venezuela. But um, the Venezuelan government is quite happy to Mm. see people leave. And I'm sure at some level, although I've never heard an explicit statement, but I imagine is quite pleased to see how destabilizing it is in places like Colombia um, that there are these massive numbers of arrivals. Well, that's interesting. I'm just thinking about it uh, from a tax-based perspective uh, that they would be losing so many, but from their point of view, they're losing problems, right? They did less mouths to feed uh, with with these food boxes. Now, on the other side of the border, you and I visited, I guess the last time we went was probably 2019 when we went uh, together and took a group down there. Um, and you mentioned when when you come across the border at Kukuta, there are the, the signs that say welcome. And there was this general feeling and it seemed like the attitude from the government was exactly as you said. The Venezuelans took us in. There's families on both sides of the border. You know, they served us at a time of great national challenge and and we're we're trying to return the favor the word on the street at the time was sort of mixed right there was a little there were a few people that would say yeah we agree with that but then there's others like okay enough already they they just keep coming here we are now a couple years later what's the sense on the colombian side you said it was a little destabilizing what's the person on the street view of what people think of venezuela Yeah. Well, the public opinion polls are pretty clear and have been for some time that the view of the number of Venezuelans is quite negative. People understand that these are people who who have needs, but they also say, but so do we. And the, the level of economic hardship that has come about because of COVID has made it so much harder to be welcoming. That said, There are absolutely extraordinary things that are being done um, to absorb refugees, things from the Colombian private sector to give them employment, Um, heroic efforts really by the Colombian government to uh, provide for people in collaboration with USAID and other international uh, relief organizations as well as private relief organizations. So, you know, it's it's a big focus of USAID funding The UNHCR has a leading role in all of this, and they will be the first to tell you that the resources needed to attend to this whole migration issue throughout the region, um, the resources are way below what is needed. And the United States is by far the largest contributor, but still regularly 30, 40% at most of the identified needs are funded in any given year. And is that because uh, on the on the world stage, you mentioned that this crisis is one of the top crises. For some reason, we act and we feel, and certainly with American involvement in Afghanistan, the, the situations in Afghanistan and Syria seem closer. We hear about them more often. We see the pictures of the, the refugee camps in Jordan more often. Uh, is that why the world opinion doesn't get as much attention to what's going on at the Venezuelan border? It's possible. I think what also has happened is that Europe 
the wealthy countries in in Europe, um, in the EU and and uh, Scandinavia, whatever, not not including countries that are not part of the EU, are also overwhelmed with their own numbers of refugees from the Middle East, from Northern Africa, from Syria in particular. So their financial resources are not as available um, to deal with Venezuelan refugees. And the Americas, for good or for ill, has long been considered a U.S. sphere of influence. So countries are regularly looking to the United States to play the leading role. And as I say, the U.S. government has played the leading role, but it's nowhere near commensurate with the need that exists. Uh, one final question here, then, uh, for you, the person who tracks this all the time, where do you see this going? What what's you know, is there any solution, any resolution, anything getting better or worse on the horizon between these two countries and that border crossing area? I think the refugee crisis is going to continue to grow. I think that the conflicts between refugees and poor people in other countries are also likely to grow. That said, there are some completely minimal glimmers of economic reactivation in Venezuela. And I think you have to take this with a huge grain of salt. But if in 2020, Venezuela was exporting something like, or producing something like 300,000 barrels per day. It's closer now to eight or 900,000 barrels per day. And you have countries like Iran that are providing the so-called diluent, the kind of gasoline that, that's needed to uh, mix with this heavy crude that Venezuela produces. Oil prices have gone up. Countries such as China, Iran are doing a lot of trade with Venezuela. There are parts of the economy that have become completely dollarized. In Caracas, people who have access to dollars can have access at pretty extremely high prices, but can have access to consumer goods and to food. And so it's becoming a kind of dual economy between people that do have access to dollars, either because they're paid in dollars in some way or another, or they um, have remittances that can be converted, that are sent in dollars, whether they're from other parts of Latin America or Europe, they can be converted to dollars, um, and the rest of the population that doesn't have any access at all, because the poverty rates are still, are still there. But, um, you know, the government is on this charm offensive now to attract foreign investment, uh, to partner in getting the oil sector back on its feet. It has been just decimated because of years and years of, of corruption and, and mismanagement, but getting countries back in. Um, and um, one possible scenario that, that's a little bit more hopeful is that you could see perhaps a process of sequencing. I'm not saying that this is happening, but you, you're trying to think of 
the the best possible scenario, um, a situation of sequencing in which liberalization and democratization on the ground in Venezuela leads to the relaxation of certain U.S. economic sanctions, which have been very punishing and very severe. I appreciate it, Cindy. Thank you so much for joining us. This is uh, a very enlightening conversation. And, you know, maybe one day we'll get to travel back down to the region. Aaron, I would love it. You tell me when and I'm I'm on the plane. Um, it's been great to partner with you on Columbia and, and other things. And I appreciate your interest and the interest of your listeners in this really important topic. 